The Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging presents The Art of Aging, information and tips on how to experience life more abundantly as we age. Our hosts are John King and Reverend Beth Long Higgins, Executive Director of the Ruth Frost Parker Center in Marion, Ohio, an initiative of the United Church Homes. Welcome to the Art of Aging podcast. Beth, today we're going to meet Dr. Cindy Olson, a recently retired gerontologist. Over her career, she's accumulated a wealth of knowledge about the health issues we face as we age. I love this interview, John, because Dr. Olson has a lot to say about the impact of ageism when we make assumptions about an individual based on how old we think they are. She's also going to share about the value of the contributions that older people can make in later life. She tells an interesting story about how she helped her students combat ageism. Let's hear her story. Tell me about you being drawn to the geriatric profession. It sort of came organically. I always saw my grandmother as being a very active woman. Even back in that era of early 60s, she was involved in her church, was always cooking, doing things around the home, always had visitors. And even at the age of 94, when she passed away, she had a head of thick, dark salt and pepper hair and was really pretty with it. So my view of older individuals was very positive of folks that contributed to the community and were part of the family. What would you advise patients about how to ensure that they get the best care? Well, I think a lot of folks don't realize what might be available to them. And certainly hospitalization has really, really changed from the time that I practiced hospital medicine. Hospital stays are much shorter. You have to be much sicker to be hospitalized. I think that everyone that goes into a hospital needs to have an advocate or a caregiver to be by their side, whether it's a family member, a very good friend, or someone that can keep notes check in daily as to what's going on in terms of their progress, their test results, who's on board, who are the specialists, what services are they getting, and are they getting them, and what isn't happening, which is just as important. How are elderly patients different than other patients? The elderly are much more heterogeneous or different than a group of young people because of their wide experiences that they've had, the very different jobs they've had, the places they've traveled, the families they've grown up in. And that was always a fun part of teaching students about older people. And part of the teaching has to do with just exposure to the elderly and recognition that One older person is just one older person. They can be very active, very healthy, or they can be a person with uh, restrictions and disabilities, and they can be of the same age. Are medical students, being generally young people, 
reticent to get into geriatrics? That was always a concern teaching geriatric medicine because it wasn't like going to the operating room or going to the emergency room where things were really exciting and kind of sexy. That you were concerned that taking young students, say, to a nursing home or to a residential home with older individuals, that you might turn them off or scare them away. So it was a real challenge to find ways to teach 20-somethings how to enjoy older patients and to inculcate the ideas and principles of care of the aging without jading them into a negative stereotype. How did you work with students to overcome ageism? One of the ways we went about that early on in my academic career was to try to get students to see older folks in their homes. Because there's a real misconception that older adults reside in care facilities. They don't always see them in their own home. So we would set them up as these little interdisciplinary teams. I would teach them how to do a functional assessment. How do you evaluate an older person in terms of their ability to get around, evaluate their nutrition, their cognitive function, their mood, and would send them out in a group of, say, three students. They typically went to a home of one of our patients, and over the time that we did this, it was a week-long geriatric curriculum, our students performed about 200 home visits. And their job was to see how well the elderly patients were performing and subsisting within their own home. Overall, the patients were doing very well. Some of these folks were married or in couples. Vast majority of them were single or were widowers. Many of them had good support systems with their neighbors or with family members that lived nearby. And it wasn't uncommon for many of them to have perhaps a shortcoming that they needed assistance with, whether it was yard work or help getting groceries. Perhaps they didn't drive and needed assistance with transportation. But it was very soon that the students realized that at the age of, say, 85 or even into their 90s, these folks were doing very, very well within their own community. They'd oftentimes tell me their home was cleaner than my apartment. They were always very stunned at how well these individuals were doing, despite the fact that they might have three chronic medical illnesses and were on a number of medications. I was always really pleased at the end of their group reports that they would comment, when I'm 85, I want to be like Harold, or I want to be like Mary. To me, that said more about how they experienced their exposure to a geriatric patient than the report themselves, because that right there told me that ageism that they might have come in with then changed, that they recognized that an older person 
can be very functional, can contribute to the community, that can live out a very positive life well into their older age, that they could actually perhaps see themselves age. What do you think your students anticipated they would find? I think a lot of them went in expecting to find either the worst, uh, a home that was in disarray, or they expected finding someone sitting in a wheelchair on oxygen. But when they walked in and found somebody up walking around dressed in exercise clothes, they all of a sudden were surprised. And that was a a beautiful aha moment. When I first started this fellowship, one of the things I did is go downtown and ask people a series of questions. And one of them was, what do you think the percentage of older people live in nursing homes? Yeah, that was a question we very frequently asked our students. And they would always come up with 30%, but it's 5% or less. And I think the home visit experience really hit that home because it made them realize, oh my gosh, I'm driving through a neighborhood and I never dawned on me that there were people 65 or older living in all these homes. It just really sort of lifts that fog away from their eyes and makes them realize that there are older neighbors all around them. There are a lot of things that can be done medically that can improve your life at this point that maybe aren't that new, but maybe some of them are new. Can you just talk about uh, some what some of those are and what your experience has been? There are a lot of medical innovations. It's really hard to keep up with it, especially the medication. And I think that's a, a really, really wonderful thing. I think the most important things in terms of aging has to do with function. and has to do with restoring and maintaining that. And I'll tell you what, Eric, I don't think that really is so much new. The things that are really important and that are innovative have been technologies in restoring hearing and restoring vision. And uh, those technologies that improve function in terms of musculoskeletal problems such as arthritis and people that have pain, people that have non-arthritic back pain, and problems with mobility. Those are the major disabilities that older people encounter and probably would cause them to have more restrictive outcomes in terms of enjoying their community and being able to get out of their home. The innovations such as cataract removal, improving vision from macular degeneration, glaucoma, being able to Uh, utilize cochlear implants or some of the better hearing aids. Those are amazing innovations that have really made a difference in people's lives. If we look at the things that cause chronic illness in the elderly, those have really increased and have actually ratcheted down from the elderly down into middle age. And we're talking about heart disease, stroke, diabetes, 
those things really need to be addressed in an aggressive way because we're going to see those problems bloom, and they do cause a lot of debility, mortality, and morbidity. Function is really the hallmark, and I believe in the use it or lose it motto. It's interesting because the folks that age well are the ones that maintain active, far past retirement. People that walk daily, stay engaged in their community, in their family, and don't just stop doing things when they retire, but do other things, whether they're volunteering, gardening, picking up new activities or hobbies. It doesn't matter. We have to continue lifelong learning in some area or some field. Those are the folks that continue to age in a thriving manner and go on to do really well. The other factor that is very important, and this needs to happen early in life, and that has to do with dietary. The folks that found the blue zones, the blue zones are areas around the world that were found to have individuals that had the highest levels of longevity. And those elders tended to have a plant-based diet that were high in legumes. A Mediterranean diet would be an example. That kind of nutrition needs to happen early in life. And I dare to say an American diet is woefully deficient in the type of nutrition that will improve the life of future elders. We eat way too much salt, sugar, and refined carbohydrates, and probably the wrong type of fats. So that is an area that if people want to age well, they need to make some changes now. A few minutes ago, you mentioned that the aging illnesses are moving into younger ages. Is that pretty much why? Oh, absolutely. The things that I had mentioned, such as hypertension, cholesterol, heart disease, and diabetes, and I could add uh, kidney problems to that, all of those could be associated with poor nutrition and a lack of physical activity. One thing we haven't covered is polypharmacy. A lot of older people are taking more than a couple of medicines, and that creates some problems of its own. Can you just talk about that a little bit? I'm glad you're talking about polypharmacy. First of all, I want to define what polypharmacy is. We used to say polypharmacy was taking five medications or more, and then the definition of that changed to taking the wrong medications. Because sometimes you have to take a medication if you've got high cholesterol or if you have high blood pressure. So there are medications that, as we age, we do have to take. But unfortunately, what I have seen is that people were taking, one, medications they didn't need to take in lieu of lifestyle change, or they were taking doses that were totally inappropriate for their age. And I want to emphasize that because as we age, our physiology changes. Our lean body mass decreases and our fat mass increases. 
We can try to do some strength training and so forth, but it's just a normal part of aging. What it meant to me in terms of prescribing was I needed to do a careful medication review on every patient and also needed to talk to them about what were the other medications other physicians were providing and what are you taking over the counter? Because as time has progressed, there are a number of medications over the counter that are not innocuous. There are quite a few over there that have side effects, especially for older patients. Anti-inflammatories used to be prescription drugs. Antihistamines used to be prescription. Acid-reducing medication for your stomach used to be prescription. So there's a number of over-the-counter medications that for some reason had been prescription They're now over-the-counter at a little lesser dose. People don't always take them that way. But once they're added to their existing medications, they have a cumulative effect. I don't think people really appreciate that. So in older folks, what we find is an effect that we call stacking. You stack medications one on top of another, and you get an accumulation of side effects. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken a cold medication that makes you drowsy. In older folks, physiologically, our brain changes, and we're more susceptible to that. You keep doing that, and all of those side effects stack one upon another. And after a while, that older person might start experiencing dizziness, confusion, dry mouth, lightheadedness, difficulty urinating, and a whole host of problems. And they have no idea that it's a combination of medications. It's probably not one medication, but it's a combination. So yes, there is a cumulative effect of medications And medications need to be looked at in terms of perhaps what is the lowest dose that is absolutely necessary for a condition. Can a condition be managed with lifestyle, exercise, and diet? How about other things? Can your arthritis be managed with some physical therapy and stretching and massage? instead of a strong pain medication. There are a lot of possibilities that are out there. I also think my older patients appreciated that approach. A lot of them enjoyed limiting the amount of prescriptions they needed to take. Now, I know you believe all movement is good movement. I do. Depending on the amount of physical activity that you do, if you increase that, it's good. The best kinds of movement for older people are weight-bearing movement because of problems with osteopenia and osteoporosis, things that increase weight along the axial system, which means your spine, your hips, your legs, is very positive and helps decrease any bone loss. The other one is stretching. We tend to have problems with flexibility. And then adding a little bit of strength training to that is also helpful. Of different exercises, when you look in the literature, 
There's been a lot written about how to reduce falls and improve balance. Tai Chi is an excellent exercise, by the way. One of the things I read about is that you might mistake things in older people that you might think differently about in a younger person. We're oftentimes presented with a symptom or a problem, such as, let's say, falling or incontinence or confusion. But there might be a whole host of diagnoses or conditions that are causing that problem. And it's up to us to find out what are all the things that are contributing to that falling or that urinary incontinence or that confusion. And then it becomes a detective game. And I love that because it's not just going to the MRI machine and getting a scan or getting a blood test. Abdominal pain, very, very common problem that we encounter in medicine, could be a whole number of problems that cause abdominal pain. Say like with appendicitis, a lot of things can present with abdominal pain. How do you know it's appendicitis? In the elderly, of all the cases of appendicitis, there might only be 5% cases that are 65 and older. So what's the likelihood of you finding an elderly patient with appendicitis? It's pretty low. So unless you show up for as many cases of abdominal pain as you can and keep going, you're going to miss that case of appendicitis in an older person. You talk about abdominal pain. One time I had a very serious case of pancreatitis. So my wife called her brother, who's an ER doctor, and he just knew everything about my condition, what should happen, how important it was. And I said, how do you know all that? He said, I've seen thousands of them. Exactly. That's a good story about your brother-in-law, the ER doctor, because, again, it goes back to having seen a lot of cases. And I think going forward with the issues of workforce, it's going to be really essential that employers recognize and tap into older workers because older workers have been found to work slower. However, they have a larger collection of knowledge about how things work and they have intuition about problems and recognition of things that work. And your example of your brother-in-law recognizing pancreatitis and being able to synthesize large collections of data in a swift way is a fine example of how a seasoned individual can be really helpful. And I think that even though older folks retire, they are very useful, whether they're volunteering for boards or going back to the workforce on a part-time basis, and they're going to be really essential going forward to fill in those gaps. And training younger workers to try to show them that skill. 
In our next episode, Eric interviews Tracy Trothan, who studies the ethical intersection between faith, aging, and technology. Can we extend the human lifespan through technology, or do we even want to? Tracy will be the keynote speaker at this fall's Ruth Frost Parker Center Symposium. This podcast was funded in part by the Dayton Foundation, Del Mar Encore Fellows Initiative, and the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging, a program of United Church Homes. Audio production and interviews were conducted by Del Mar Fellow Eric Johnson.